it's much easier to tap into the, how to be, you know, fully in the moment, being around people who totally accept you. They're not lecturing you. They're not trying to tell you how you can fix your problems. It's just like, oh my God, that's the salve that everybody wants. If everyone had that, can you imagine, Steve, what could happen for people's feeling accepted to then, you know, confront whatever issue they're dealing with? Del Wong here, and I'm so excited to be on a guest today for the World Gone Good podcast. Hey, Steve. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello is the word of the day, apparently. My name is Steve, and this is the place where we shine the light into the darkness to prove time and time again there is good out there and lots of it. Welcome to World Gone Good. We are wrapping up a three-episode arc right here focused on why so many of us feel stuck and how we can become unstuck. I figured it was a good way to start a good new year. Did I figure right? Wrong? Wrongish? Rightish? I leave that up to you, my good listener. But this, this right here, is the third and final episode of our Unstuck Journey. My guest today is Adele Wong. She's a women's expert in stress relief, executive coach, keynote speaker, and the host of her own podcast. Her goal is to help smart, intuitive, perfectionist women create happiness and success in an imperfect world. So I think it's pretty safe to say she knows a something or two about getting stuck and getting unstuck, and we are in safe, good hands. Here comes all things human creator and host Adele Wong with her good journey. I'm going to dive right in because I listen to your podcast and we're going to get to all things about you. But you said something that really affected me. Change comes at the rate of safety. Absolutely. For those of you who might not know what I do, um, I'm a mentor coach. I work with hundreds of high performers around the world. And I've been doing this for 15 years. And um, one thing I have really noticed within myself and in working closely with humanoids um, who are all trying to change. I mean, I'm always you know, wanting to grow. And most of the people, most of the people I know in life are trying to grow towards more of something, whether it's a better relationship or doing more of the type of livelihood they want. There's always something we want. And that's great. That's the human condition. We are meant to grow. There's so, you know, that sometimes you can be content with things for a while, but eventually there's something that niggles at you. I'd like to either, you know, take a turn and try this, or I'm going to want to go for that. And then that often requires us to grow into more of who we are. And, but that can often be scary because it brings up everything we learned about ourselves that was not true growing up or whatever. And so I've always felt with people who are so impatient to grow that change happens at the pace of safety. It doesn't really happen depending on how much you know or how much work you put into yourself. Because I get a lot of people who really work on themselves a lot. And 
that's admirable. I mean, that shows a lot of motivation. It shows you're really committed. Yay. And sometimes it can feel like a lot of work, you know, and like it's unpleasant. It, it feels burdensome. It feels like, well, yeah, I'm still falling short in this or I'm still falling short of that. And I found that if we can look to how can we feel safe first before doing these big changes, it's just a little bit easier, a lot easier. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And my question that goes with this is, have you always felt safe to make changes in your own life? Oh, God, absolutely not. So everything that comes out of my mouth is what I learned the hard way. And I'm not talking just about one or two screw ups. You know, I, <laughs> you know, sometimes it takes 10 or 20 screw ups before I get with the program. But I think that's one reason why I, I talk about this a lot, because I know how it really messed me up because I was always very much a striver to be more something, but that meant I wasn't happy with where I was, which meant that I had to look at myself and that scared me. And the more I tried, the worse I felt. And I was in that cycle. Is it cultural? Is it familiar? Like, is it the family upbringing? Is it where, where we live in the world? I, yes, yes. And yes. Yeah. That the idea that you're already fine the way you are, even before you've read a single self-help book, even before you've done your first meditation or worked on better couples communication or lost 30 pounds or whatever it is, you're already fine. Like that is hard for at least in, in this part of the world for people to really embrace. Like there's this feeling of, well, that wouldn't I just turn into a slug? <laughs> right. you know, indulgent slug that sits on the couch and doesn't do anything. I think we have a culture that assumes that if you don't flagellate yourself somehow or criticize yourself somehow, you won't rise to your full potential. I think that's a deep fear that's behind perfectionism, that's behind anxiety. You know, I'm I'm not doing what I should be doing, whatever that is, or I know I should be doing something and I'm not, procrastination. This, it's, I don't know. We've just been raised that how we are already is just not enough. And it paralyzes us to some degree. Because you also talk about something you said on one of your shows. You said less time processing issues, more time discovering who you are. And to me, that language also comes down to something we talk a lot about on the show is we all can talk a lot. And then there's a point where you have to take action. And And when we spend so much time, and I'm not a licensed therapist, I'm a human, right? And I spent a lot of time getting in, trying to get out of my own head. But I also know uh, part of it is just getting up and walking and moving and making the walk happen. Absolutely. In a way, I think it's a little bit unnatural for people to be this into looking at their own issues. I mean, life will show you without you having to dig unnecessarily. Meaning sometimes I think people can over process to the point where they're never done. There's always one more thing to look at. Of course there is, right? but life is passing you by while you're processing. And I would rather people be more in life and let the processing sort of happen in the background. Don't worry. You won't miss the memo, but life first processing second Because as you live your life, a lot of the processing will just be easier because you're going to, you're just going to discover more things about yourself. But if processing takes over you doing anything, then it 
can become like a, a safety hangout. Like I'm, I'm going to work on my issues for until I do something. And um, I, I just feel like we've got it kind of reversed, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I'm quoting you a lot here because it all plays into it because you also talk about – I told you. I listen to your show and I make I make notes because I love it. You said something recently. You said life was never meant to be a constant self-improvement project. And that ties into everything. And I, and, and I really would like to know where did that statement come from for you in your own life? Oh, my gosh. Because earlier on, I was an addict of self-improvement. I really was. I was so zealous. Um, and I thought I was getting somewhere by studying psychology out of books. Instead of actually finding out for myself or engaging with humanoids, I would like read books. And I could give you brilliant lectures on attachment styles, which I think that's a very popular topic these days. You know, why am I the way I am? Oh, I have this you know, issue with my mom. I'm, I was very articulate. And I noticed early on that I didn't know how to connect with people. I only knew how to try to understand psychology, like more from a clinician observer point of view. And that is one way to be in the world, you know, kind of like you're observe, you're observing people. And I get a lot of people that are observing life, you know, you're just watching, but they're not in it, if that makes sense. Because the experience of being in life feels different than just watching it go by. And so for the first 30 some years of my life, all I knew was how to observe. And I was constantly feeling like, okay, some, if I'm not feeling more connected with other humans, there must be something in me I need to fix. What is it? Is it my attachment style? Oh, look at these 10 points. The who's he, what's it's about how to work on your attachment style by yourself. And I realized I was driving myself crazy. The more self-help made me feel worse about myself not better. You know, I feel like if what you're doing doesn't start making you feel better, it's a very simple metric. Does studying all this stuff actually help you? It should be a pretty clear, you know, you don't have to think too hard, you know, yes or no, or maybe it's a maybe. But people over-intellectualize. They say, well, I'm working on this. I'm working on that. And my number one question is, and how does that feel? Like, is that enjoyable or does it feel like a flaw you've got to go mend before you can be allowed to join the human race? Yeah, it's a weird paralysis that we self-impose on ourselves, um, which I find so uh, interesting <laughs> of, of overthinking, of overthinking at times. Yeah, we overthink our thinking. We overthink our feelings. A lot of my clients, because I work with high performers everywhere around the world, when they first come in, they intellectualize their feelings, meaning they think by talking about their feelings, they're feeling them. They don't know the difference between talking about a feeling and actually feeling the feeling. They kind of look at me like, what, what, what do you mean? And I said, it's all in the energy. It's where are you in the body? That's why I love podcasts. Because there's no visual element to distract that anyone out there listening, they're tuning into your voice, Steve. They're tuning into my voice and they're feeling something. They don't know why, but there's a feeling of whatever's going on here. I like this. 
And it may not make any sense. You and I could be talking Greek right now or some other obscure language that no one's ever even, you know, Martians could come down from the earth. But if we're talking at this level, people will feel something. And they're going to get out of their head and go, I don't know what this is, but I kind of like it. I'm like, trust that. You can put away all of the self-improvement stuff, which in my book was not really a natural thing to start. Because once upon a time, this is Adele's little narrative, if you're interested in it, Steve. Do you want me to tell you <laughs> yes, my please. little narrative? Okay. Once upon a time, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, when people still roamed the planet, we were originally wired to live in small groups, small bands, communities of people. There wasn't anything called a psychiatrist or a therapist around. That was like an alien concept. Nobody wrote self-help books analyzing the mind. What happened, though, was that people would share stories amongst each other. You'd sit around a campfire after a meal. There'd be a sense of community. And the elders would tell stories And that is how people gleaned wisdom. No one sat around and said, this is your attachment style. It was more like, let me tell you about the story of the white crescent moon bear who lived at the top of the mountain. And this woman who desperately wanted to help her husband climb the mountain. I mean, there's a whole, these myths are universal around the planet. They've been collected. They're archetypal, but through the sharing of stories or the sharing what happened on the hunt today with chasing the bison or whatever, people were in contact with each other and they were in life learning about themselves while they're living instead of separated somewhere, reading a book or in their head about themselves. And we were wired to be more supported in community. So when you asked, is this Why are people, you know, this way? It's partly the way we're living. We don't have community. There's, there, when was the last time people talked to their neighbors? Or if you're feeling crappy, do you have someone in your life that feels like an elder? Not a paid therapist that studied psychology as much as someone who knows you, knows your history, and isn't trying to fix you, and just sharing what has helped for them so that you can learn. And oh, this might, I might try this, not teaching you in that classical educational way, but more, well, this is what's worked with me. You might try this. That's a more organic way of growth. And that's why I feel like when wisdom is conveyed in that model, it feels safer. You can sip and choose what you like instead of someone, you know, trying to get inside your head and analyze your problems, which feels kind of, you know, people are different. That doesn't work for everyone. But a more organic way of growth always comes from feeling accepted in community first, that I am not the, you know, I'm not a, a total loser on planet Earth. I'm just figuring some things out. And it goes back to your stories you were just saying, because when they told stories, I'm a storyteller, I'm a writer. When you tell stories, it's how that makes the person feel. And and it's the reactionary, instinctual feeling you have. I feel good. I feel safe. I feel angry. I feel love. And you can't always intellectually say why that made you feel that way. It just did. It just did. Who cares why? Right, right. 
That's a big letting go. That's a big letting go to say who cares why because you have to be brave enough to say, I'm okay with not knowing (laughs) why that is. Oh, that's a huge leap for people who have been on the self-discovery path for a while. If it's been an intellectual journey, the mind is going, okay, so is this like attachment theory or is this like the Enneagram? Like they're going to try to make sense of an experience in their head first because they want to understand it. And I'm like, okay, let's set that stuff aside just for a moment. And just, can you just feel it in your body that you don't need to know why in order to feel better? You really don't. You really don't have to understand your problems first to feel better. It's much easier to tap into how to be fully in the moment, being around people who totally accept you. They're not lecturing you. They're not trying to tell you how you can fix your problems. It's just like, oh my God, that's the salve that everybody wants. If everyone had that, can you imagine, Steve, what could happen for people's feeling accepted to then you know, confront whatever issue they're dealing with. But if you've got people who are empty and unsupported, trying to fix themselves without the basics of your groovy, no matter what, if you never lose your 50 pounds, if you never, you know, figure out why you are, it's all right. You know, I, I, I just wish because self-help has become this mega industry. You know, zillions of books. Of course. And money. Everything comes back to money. (laughs) The more people work on themselves, the more they feel like they need to work on themselves. And here's the thing. I'm not against self-help. I'm not. There are some valuable things. But it cannot replace community, being present with another humanoid in the room. Because what I've noticed now in our culture of self-help, people feel like growth comes only from, I'm going to, I'm going to read my book about you know what I need to do to fix myself. And then I'm going to go for a long walk on the beach by myself and process. And I'm like, that's great. But what happens when you come home and another person's in the room with you? Like right. that's when things happen because we are wired. Most of what we want, love, money, better relationships, opportunity, most things that we want come through people in some way, right? I mean, money doesn't just, you know, show up. It comes through an exchange of services or a relationship. So if dealing with humanoids is the fundamental thing that stresses you out, then, you know, it, part of the healing process needs to be being around humanoids, not you by yourself in the, I love long walks on the beach, but you would be shocked at how many people use meditation and solitude to try to heal relationship issues. It doesn't work so well. I mean, it's, it's got some value. But in the end, this dance with another humanoid needs to be part of the equation instead of shutting down or, oh, I'm going to go no contact with 99% of the people in my life or I just don't need people. My, my, I'm destined to be alone in this life. Like all these things people do to try to minimize pain. Because it feels, I don't feel safe around people. Yep. It comes back to yourself. A lot of my clients struggle with this. So I've learned that they don't know. They're paying me to know the difference between feeling something and talking about a feeling. I can't hold them accountable for what they don't know. So if you're listening out here, I'm going to demo. Would you like me to demo something? Sure. And you can feel the difference? Okay. So I'm going to talk about the same thing two ways. 
And you as a listener, it's a good thing that this is audio only. You can feel something in your body. And then maybe your listeners will get a sense of what it means to talk about a feeling and not feel anything. So this would be the first way. So I'm going to step into an energy. Yeah, you know, Adele, I have been struggling with relationships a long time. And I know a lot of this stems from my mom because, you know, my parents divorced when I was seven. And after that, my mom was a single parent. And I always knew that she struggled a lot with her own self-doubt. She she was a perfectionist. Um, she had a narcissist father. And I totally get that most of her life was trying to get the attention of her parents. And so she couldn't be fully present with me. And I totally get that. I totally get that, that my mom wasn't able to give me what I needed. And, um, you know, I have spent a lot of therapy and in myself in trying to learn to parent myself because I, I, I know I can't change my mom, but I still know that every time I go home, I can see that these are these same patterns that happen over and over every Thanksgiving or Christmas when my grandparents are around and I can see my mom falling into those same patterns and I know what she's thinking. She's feeling like she's not good enough. And all it takes is a criticism from my grandmother. And my mom just shuts down. And it makes me so upset. And I want to do something. And I can't. Okay. So just notice what that felt like. That's that's a typical thing that someone might say. Okay. This is the second way. Let me drop into it. Adele, I have struggled my whole life to get the kind of quality relationships I want. And at this point, I'm just, I feel really disappointed because I feel like, I don't know, there's something about me, like I have trouble showing up. I mean, I know it's, you know, from a mom that wasn't really there for me. And I know I do tend to try to parent everyone I'm around, but I don't know how to stop it. I just know that I feel very, um, lonely. Like I feel like I'm lonely in a crowd. I feel like I'm the person that everyone else comes to and tells me all their problems. And I want to be there for them. I try to support them. But when I need help, they are never there for me. I don't know if it's, this is something that I'm doing. Is it something that I need to address in, in this relationship? But I'm so tired of being everyone's therapist, even my own mom. You know, she calls me up and I know I'm in for a drama dump of 20 minutes on the phone where she's complaining about this and, and I can feel inside. I just want to scream. I feel like the first 30 some years of my life were spent propping everyone else up but me. And I, I, I'm just done. Okay, so can you feel the difference? A hundred percent because the first version is – a person who is taking the time to list all of the problems, but they are an exterior list. They're not, they are not part of that list. They have separated themselves. This happened and this happened. I know that happened and this happened and that happened, right? Yes. And it's they're very articulate. Oh, yeah. And it makes it quite accurate. And that, you know? Because that's the story we can all tell ourselves. Look, we all know our story, right? We all have it memorized. <laughs> No one knows our our lists better than we know them. But the second one is a person who comes from a place of vulnerability saying from the beginning, I have a problem. There you go. I have an issue. I have a thing. I know it. There you go. Right there. And 
this is the stuff that it's much easier to help people drop in if you understand like some of the stuff that I'm a specialist embodiment and energy. And if you have a therapist who's just waiting for the client to drop down, they, they don't know how. Right. Right. And so a good therapist would have been able to, not that, I mean, I'm not a therapist, but I know this problem because I have clients that are therapists and they feel bad, you know, they, and I'm like, what if you changed your craft more into an energetic model instead of an intellectual one? And they're like, what? I'm like, just get in here. And, then, and uh, there's some things that can just simplify so you can feel somebody. You don't have to be a therapist. This is also why you might have friends or acquaintances or people that you call friends that when they're around, they drain you. They might be talking about what's going on and you feel nothing. And it feels like a barrage of this happened and that happened. And as a listener, you start to get irritated or you check out, right? Like there's almost a sense of, oh my God, can I get off this phone call? Or why don't they just snap out of it? It's because that person's not there. They're talking. Right. You can't feel anything. People don't know how to do this. And that's one of the cornerstones of my work is to show people because you can't expect people to open up when they don't know what it feels like. And they're scared. Yeah. And that's part of being human. You know, it's interesting. I'm a, I'm a playwright. Um, I've written plays since the 90s. I put up my first play. Um, my, my listeners are sick of hearing about it. Haha. Ha. Uh, this last March, I put up my first play in 19 years called Happy Birthday McKenna. And the, the best compliment I got, and I got it several times, is in one way or another, an audience member came up to me or wrote me or texted me a friend, whether I knew him or not. Sometimes they were strangers and said, you took me on a ride. And that made me feel so good because what I love about theater uh, is the presence is we're going to turn our phones off. <laughs> There's a big announcement right at the beginning of the show. Turn your damn phone off. You're going to be present for 70 minutes. We're going to take you on a ride. The fact that you use the word ride makes me so happy because you got on board. You allowed yourself to be part of the experience. We had a very interesting thing happen, which is one of the nights there was an accident literally five seconds before the show was supposed to start. All the power in the building went off. We only had what's called the work lights. I was able to turn those on. I came out to this, a, a full audience and said, listen, the power, I don't know when it's coming back on. You know, DWP, whoever was out there was out there. Southern California Edison, I don't know who was out there. They were out there working on it. Here's the deal. I can send you home right now and refund everybody. I can give you tickets to another night. Or we can do the show right now, except I can't turn these lights on, off and the lights are going to... You're going to be able to see the, the, the cast, but the cast is going to be able to see you, right? Because we bring the lights down on the audience. I can't do that today, tonight. It was an incredibly, they gave them a standing ovation, which I loved. It was one of the most powerful nights because we were all in it together. We couldn't do any of the sound cues. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. This is what people are yearning for. Connection. Connection. Connection, hunger. And it's, I think, because we're all so empty of it in our daily lives, then that's one reason why people go to theater because, or the movies, it's, sure. it's like a place to sort of vicariously experience something. And I think live theater is much better than a movie, but it's like, okay, 
in this 70 minutes, I can just be me and, and lose myself and feel something because I'm supposed to feel something because that's the whole point of theater. And then go back to my regular life when I'm, I feel like I, I've got to sort of amp down my emotional amp. Life can be theater. You know, theater should be more like life, but instead <laughs> we go to theater to feel life. But it's interesting. Yeah. Now, on this note, you talk about being a container. And that's, I I want you to talk to my audience about what that means. It's so funny. I I know exactly where I was was when you said it. I I walk to the gym now. I stopped driving the car. It's a 1.3 mile walk. And I'm like, it's a good, you know, warm up. It's a good cool down. I'll just walk it. A really interesting thing happens to me. I'll admit it. Every time I start walking, the first block is the hardest block because I keep thinking to myself, let's just go get the car. I'll get there faster. If I just go get the car, I just get the car. And then I tell myself, shut up listen to whoever's in your ear right now. And you were in my ear and you started talking about being a container. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, this has to do with energy and connection that when you are talking to someone, um, it's well, first of all, you have to have a better sense of your own energy, which our culture is horrible at. And this is why we have people, um, Oh, empathically, you know, energetically bleeding into other people and getting lost in the sauce of other people's pain and then shutting down because it's too much. A container is a way to hold energy, holding your own. And then when you are talking to someone else, there's a container of the relationship. What happens right now is if you've got people who aren't aware of their own energy, like they've never worked with an energy person like me or, or somebody who can speak this new language that we're talking about. Um, it can feel a little bit like, um, like if you've got two um, people throwing a ball back and forth, like tossing a baseball back and forth, the way it should work is that one person throws a ball and is caught by the other. Then the other person catches that ball of energy or whatever was says and tosses it back. That there's a back and forth. That's the container that there is something that's holding this game of catch together. Instead of one person throwing the ball and it flies over the shoulder of the other person and goes off into infinity somewhere where it just keeps going and going and going and like, it's never caught. And then the other person waits for the person to stop talking and throws another ball over. And that flies over the first person's shoulder goes off into infinity. Like it's never caught. And that's when people don't feel heard, even when they're talking at each other, because it's more like sometimes reflective listening is just kind of a gimmick. You know, I'm just going to repeat what you said, but I didn't really catch you. People can feel it. It's a feeling of this energy that I send you doesn't just go blasting around the planet. You caught it and you digest it and you send it back to me. It's, it's an energetic dance instead of a blast, if that makes sense. Because people can only be on blast for a while, and then they're exhausted. I've run all my energy. You didn't hear a word I said, and they shut down. So this is a container. It's like having a skin around your energy and the person you're with so that you always know where your energy is, and you're not bleeding into the other person. It's not like uh, meshing. It's more like two water balloons, maybe snuggled up next to each other. Right now, what happens with sensitive people, it's like porcupines. You know, they poke each other's water balloon and it just deflates and the water runs everywhere. And then it feels like you're in my stuff or, oh, I feel you and you feel me. And it's just gross. You know, we always need to have our own energy field. It's this is the stuff that empaths really struggle with, really struggle with being drained by other people, 
If you don't have your own energy um, bubble, it's very difficult to set boundaries. And this is when people go into their heads and they try to memorize scripts. I mean, well, I mean, that's helpful. But if your own energy can't hold your own energy, people won't hear a word you say. Even if you say the perfect script for you, you won't feel it. People will respond to your energy more than your words. So, I mean, this is a more complex thing that I can articulate, but um, people can feel it. People can feel And all I care about is what people feel just much faster than a billion words, you know? The podcast is called All Things Human. Tell everybody about it. Yeah, I'd love to have um, more listeners. And this is an amazing podcast. I've enjoyed listening to some of your previous episodes. World Gone Good. No, never love mind me. You. Plug you. <laughs> well, no, this is good because we spent the word on good podcasts. Right, right, right. Well, <laughs> things worth listening to. Let me ask you about the podcast for a question, a quick thing here. Did you just dive in or did you make a plan? Was it like, I'm going to start a podcast or were you like, yeah, you know what? I think I'll record and see what happens. Yeah. The great question. Well, the, the long story is once upon a time, 10 years ago, I put some stuff out and I never told anybody about it. It was on SoundCloud. I forgot about it for eight years. And then one day I logged on. I'm like, oh my God, like people are listening to this stuff. Then I said, all right, maybe I'll do something with this. And then, you know, formally let people know. But originally this podcast, it became, it was first a hobby. Then it became something that I was recording mostly for my clients. So for my private clients, I felt like just more efficient. Just let me blurt this stuff out and you can listen to it at your own leisure, you know? So it was for them. And then I realized, well, I'm just going to open it up. You know, it's useful to other people. And my private clients often use it, but they're, they're sending it out to their friends. And I'm like, okay, it's just an open resource for people who want me in their ear to talk about things that it's kind of rumbling under the surface, but no one's been able to find a way to discuss it. So that's what, that's kind of the stuff I like to talk about. The final two questions on our show are always the same. You can go back to anything we've talked about, anything you want to share. First question is this, who inspires you? Who inspires me? Um, there's some people that helped me when I'm almost unalive myself earlier on. I mean, we didn't have time to go into my horrible story of depression and crashing from intellectualized stuff, but um, they're not famous. One is no longer on the planet, but they really were my elders. And they were the ones that helped me see my blind spot. Cause I, it's kind of like if you only, no vitamin C and you're overdosing on vitamin C and more vitamin C, self-help, improvement. But what I really need to have a more soulful life is vitamin A. No amount of C is going to, you can't substitute these things. And I had no idea that I had a huge blind spot in me. Vitamin A is the nourishment I needed that I couldn't articulate because my mind was trying to analyze myself. So some of the stuff I've discussed today touch on what helped me. Vitamin A of, oh, like you don't have to figure out yourself to feel happier. You just, you know, start to feel a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of people. They're not famous. They don't want to be famous, but they impacted me deeply. They they do what I do now. With, so a lot of their work I'm now um, sharing with clients in my group programs and private clients around the world. Yeah, so I'm very indebted to them. And the final question is not a question. It is a statement to finish. Any way you want. It can be anything. Tell me something good. 
Life is worthwhile. It is a gift. I know sometimes it's hard, but don't give up. You're here for a reason. Make this one bodacious life as as joyful and as fulfilling as you possibly can. Thank you, Adele, for sharing your good. And to you, my good listener, I hope these three episodes have given you some insight into getting past that stucky feeling. Next time on World Gone Good. I belong to the Black Ski Club uh, in D.C. So there are all these organizations that's out there where you have black people who are skiing and who are snowboarding. So that was one of the things that I talked about in my essay. You know, we've got to get past this old narrative because we are out there and we are actively participating and doing it. My good friend Victoria Gaither skis back onto our show to help us tear down the stereotypes and redefine the narrative. She is an award-winning journalist living her best life, well, part of the year at least, up in Killington, Vermont. Vic joins us to talk about the ski community, specifically how being a person of color herself, combining up with her ability to uplift others through her favorite sport and her written word all meshed together into one really cool, really great, good time. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, be good.